we moved to Bowling Green, and Bowling Green was just, it was like moving back into the 1950s. We were always outsiders in Bowling Green. We never found a way in. We were always outsiders because we didn't go to Western. We didn't grow up there. We didn't have family from there. We tried the Presbyterian Church there, and it just, it didn't gel. There were all these little things that just built up until your mother and I basically said, This is not the place for us. We do not belong here. <laughs> do y'all remember on Sunday mornings when they started the preaching, I would take the bulletin and I'd start drawing pictures on it. I'd draw a house. I'd draw a little line. And you guys were just like, okay, kept you quiet, kept you focused. Life was good. I must have checked out on a lot of this. Yeah? You were sitting right there on his other side. Yeah, you're kind of like, is that the best you can come up with? I can go home and watch Rugrats. I can go home and watch Ninja Turtles. I can go home and do all kinds of stuff. Anyway, there was one Sunday morning. I forgot what actually was going on. But halfway through the sermon, instinctively, your mother and I looked at each other. And we both mouthed to each other at the same time, what the hell are we doing here? Well, one other thing happened. I think the week you were talking about that Sunday, we drove home from church and stopped at a stoplight and Benjamin said, so are we Jewish or are we Christian? And I said, well, you know, I said, you're both because I'm Jewish and your dad's Christian. So that kind of makes you both. And you said, well, I'm Jewish and I am not going to church anymore. And Nathan piped up and said, me too. And I said, okay, well, we'll talk about this some more when we get home. My name is Nathan Jordan Vaughn. It's 72 miles to Kentucky. Let's get moving. Dad was an extremely generous man, and I think he got it from his father. Now, Fred Sr., from what I understand, had something to do with the beginning of the Bowling Green Boys and Girls Club, setting up an establishing of that. Uh, yes, Bowling Green had a, a large contingent of Jewish population, whether they practiced the faith or not. The more I know about them, the more I hear about them. And they have a, you know, they have a plot there in, in the cemetery. That's John Nam again, Samuel Nam's great-grandson. John grew up in Bowling Green in a Methodist home and with no real sense of his own Jewish identity. He knew that his father was Jewish, and that some members of their family were Jewish, and that somehow, his family was different from others in Bowling Green. John shared memories with me of driving to shul in Nashville for a bas mitzvah and later for a wedding. And he told me two ways that he knew from a young age that his immediate family was different from the rest of the family. First, because they ate ham, but also because every year at Thanksgiving, when his father put out the turkey, John's cousins would rush to pick out the smoked oysters and eat them first. It's played on my mind a lot over the years. In my exploration, I see a lot of Jew in me. <laughs> you know, um, the life of kindness and love and accepting of other human beings, no matter who they are. But when I ever ask Dad, tell me about my Jewish heritage, he always diverted because 
the Southern attitude and the Southern values made it difficult to just announce that you were Jewish, you know. And Dad, he was a member of the Bowling Green Country Club. And uh, my grandmother, my father's mother, we called her D because she would sit us on the la- her knee and go D D D D D D D D D D D D D. So she that was her name. And D was um, organist at the Baptist Church in Bowling Green. So you assimilated into the surroundings, but they weren't Hasidics. You know, they weren't going to dress or actually behave as Hasidic. They may not eat ham, and we did. That was Mother's contribution to it, you know. Um, My brother, Cliff, who still lives in Bowling Green, by the way, but Cliff would say, should I eat this ham or not? Am I Jewish or not? But I think he just was being funny. But the house that I grew up in was not a Jewish home. We did not perform, you know, any of the holidays. And I will share this with you that it's kind of, even today, I think I, I wonder all that went into the interaction. Um, but my father's second cousin, we called him Uncle Jack, and he was out of Louisville. It was the Nams that lived in Louisville, Kentucky. Jack and Aunt Louise were at my father's funeral, and we were placed to the side, you know, where the family sits. They had to open up the funeral home because it wasn't, it, it couldn't hold all the people that came to see dad. But I remember Aunt Louise and Uncle Jack sitting in the pews behind us, and the preacher was talking about dad converting. I'm sure mother had something to do with it, but also I think it was from the heart. So uh, I remember them saying when the preacher announced that my dad had become a Christian, I looked at them, Uncle Jack and Aunt Louise, and Aunt Louise said, I figured that. (laughs) And Uncle Jack nodded his head. He said, yep. And that was it. You know, now, even to this day, I'm not exactly sure exactly what they meant, but I think it sure had to do with Dad taking a different path. By the time my family made it to Bowling Green, the Noms were mostly long gone. Emily, Emmanuel's granddaughter and namesake, died in New York in the early 1980s, well before my family found their way to Bowling Green. A few of Sam's descendants lived in the surrounding area, but none of them practiced Judaism or were active in the local Jewish community. And I didn't even know the name Nam until I started researching for this podcast. There was no foundation, no history for future Bowling Green Jews to lean on when my family moved there in the late 1980s. But because Bowling Green was a college town with two hospitals, there was a Jewish community of sorts. So we were at the downtown library up in the children's library, and we were picking out books and this woman was there with her children, and she heard me calling your names, and you, they were very Jewish names. So she approached me and asked me if we had to be Jewish. And I said, yes, we were. And she said, oh, that's great. And I asked her, you know, like how she knew. And she said, well, you know, we had very Jewish names, so she thought maybe we were. She said, I haven't seen you before, and we're having Rosh Hashanah dinner, 
the community is, and I thought she might be interested in joining us. And so she gave me all the information. And that was when you met her daughter, Rachel, who became a very good friend of yours. So that was our introduction to the Jewish community. We went to the Rosh Hashanah dinner, and it was very nice. We met a lot of people. And I was surprised that there were that many Jewish people, you know, in the area. And so we had dinner. And then after dinner, you know, I asked somebody, I said, well, where do we go for services? And they said, oh, we don't do services. We just do dinner. And they told me that there were some people who were members of congregations in Nashville, and they would probably go to services tomorrow in Nashville. So that was our introduction to um, Jewish Bowling Green. And that's also where we learned about the um, congregation Owensboro that had the student rabbi from HUC in Cincinnati. At first, we tried out the existing Reformed Synagogue in Nashville, which had been around since the days of the Noms. But we had a bad experience. I went with a friend one Sunday just to check it out. But my friend's mother was quickly told that guests weren't allowed. And so we never went back. My mother, after all, had a thing about feeling welcome in Jewish spaces. So I was trying to figure out, I knew that there was a reform congregation in Nashville. We had visited it. And it just did not feel like the right place for us. So I was trying to, you know, find out what the differences were between Reform and conservative congregations, because I had no experience with Reform congregations. I had some experience with conservative congregations. And I knew that the non-Jewish spouse was just never accepted in conservative congregations unless that person converted to Judaism. So I went over to Western Kentucky University's library and I met up with Michael Binder, who at that time was the, I don't know what you call the head of the library, but he was the head of the library. And he helped me get set up with some research materials so I could get a sense of what the Union of American Hebrew Congregations was all about and where they differed from the um, United Conservative Congregations. And it became really clear to me that if we were going to look for congregations as a family, that it had to be a Reformed congregation. And it also occurred to me that if Bollingham was ever going to do anything about having a congregation, it would have to be a Reformed congregation because that would be the thing that would be the most open to most people in the area. So that must have been around 1990. At what point in this journey did we start going to Owensboro? I'm trying to think. 1990? That building maybe? is on the National Registry yeah. of Historic Places now. It turned it into is, a library, didn't it? It is. Yes. Um, yes. Because yes. I think it became a church temporarily it was it was being taken care of by the church um by like a church that was a friend of the synagogue yeah um but it was still technically owned well the congregation the, folded it shuttered it, its doors it, yeah it sunset i think is the word they use for it what happened is in the south there were a lot of jewish small jewish groups all over the place right 
They raised their children to be educated, intelligent, articulate. They sent them off to college. And they didn't come back. And, and they, they refused come to back. come back. Owensboro was one of them. All right. And so all of a sudden, we showed up with two little boys, and they thought, just like Central Prayers, life is starting all over again. So here we go. And it was like, uh, not necessarily, because you know, we drove all the way there, we drove all the way back. There was a student rabbi from HUC and all this sort of stuff. The problem was, is we would show up on Friday nights. They would have Hebrew school on Saturday, but we weren't about to drive home and then drive back. Yeah, no, we only went, we went from Purim one time too. Remember that. But then Micah became the focal point because they were kids. Well, we, I mean, it's just like, look, if we're going to drive that far, we're going to drive an hour, we're going to go someplace where there are other children. Where there's a community. Community, right. I remember Nathan running up to me and saying, Mommy, look at all the kids, and they're all Jewish. You've never seen that many Jewish kids at one time. Congregation Micah was a brand new synagogue that was just being formed in Nashville. Some of the wealthier members of the existing Reform Synagogue had decided to split away for whatever reason and form their own community. They hired a rabbi, rented a space, and set out recruiting Jewish families from just about anywhere and everywhere. So it was a building that had formerly been a disco. And the disco ball was still hanging in the main area that was going to be a sanctuary. As soon as I parked my car and walked in, three people immediately greeted me and welcomed me and asked me for my name and, you know, was what was my interest in being there. And so I told them that I had two young children and we lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and we were looking for, you know, a congregation in which to raise our children and that my husband was not Jewish and we were looking for some place that might fit our family. And they immediately, you know, well, have they had any religious education up to now? And said, well, you know, because my husband is Christian, we've been going to a um, Presbyterian church and then we do our stuff at home. But we're at that point where, you know, we're at a crossroads and we either need to raise them Jewish or raise them Christian. And raising them Christian is just not a comfortable option for me in Bowling Green because everything we have discovered is just far too conservative. Both educators were there that day. All the teachers were going to be volunteers. There There was going to be no paid faculty. The only expense of the religious school was going to be the cost of books and materials. So it was very minimal. We were not the only people coming an hour away. They had a lot of people coming from as far as, you know, Crossville, Tennessee and Lewisburg, Tennessee and Austin P University area. So we were not the only ones that were driving quite a distance. So I thought, okay, well, you know, we won't be the only oddball out. So I spent an hour talking to the people, mostly a lot of the time was talking to the educators about, you know, what the curriculum was going to be like and looking at the materials they had, looking at the prayer book they were going to be using, you know, knowing that a lot more of it was going to be in English than Hebrew and feeling like it would be more accessible to me and to your dad. 
and feeling like it would be comfortable for us and someplace we might actually want to be. And so I left with, you know, with all the, all the papers, you know, the membership papers and stuff. And so I went home and, you know, I thought, well, okay, we'll think about it. And when they when they open, we'll go and we'll see what it's like. And then the next day, I got a call from Jerry Duchin, who was one of the founding members of the congregation. And um, Jerry called and asked me what I thought about it. I said, you know, I, I thought you guys had a really nice setup and you were very, very welcoming and very kind. And, you know, we thought we'd um, wait until things actually got started and then come visit and um, come to a service and maybe be able to come to high holiday services. And, you know, if possible, um, try it out for a couple months and try Sunday school out and see how that works. He said, well, we have a different idea. <laughs> I thought, oh God, I'm in trouble. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, well, we would like for you to go ahead and join the congregation. And I said, well, you know, that's that's a lot of money for us to put out on something that we're not sure will work. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make a deal with you. You go ahead and join and come for four weeks and try it out. And if after four weeks, it's just not working for your family, for whatever reason, the distance or whatever, we will refund anything that you've already paid. And I thought, okay, well that's, you know, that's reasonable. It gives us a chance to, you know, go to services. It gives us a chance to go to Sunday school for several weeks and check and see how you guys feel about it. And if you're still excited after four weeks and willing to, you know, to get up and come, so I told your dad what we we're going to do. He's like, okay, you know, if you can make it work, let's give it a try. So I have this thing that I do. And when I tell you, you'll either laugh or not. You see, every year on Yom Kippur, I have a weird tradition. I go to McDonald's, sometimes in the middle of the day. And more often than not, I get a Happy Meal. I've been doing this for years, and I knew it was a habit that I developed early in life. I remember being about 10 or 11 years old and skipping out of shul during afternoon services with my father. We'd head to McDonald's for a snack and be back in time to hear the story of Jonah. My dad loves the story of Jonah. Read on the holiest day of the year, Jonah was a part of Jewish life that my father could understand. And so even though he took me out of services for a midday snack, he always made sure that we made it back in time for Jonah. But what I didn't know was just how early this tradition got started and why, and how resistant my mother was to pairing McDonald's with service attendants from the very beginning. My first impression or my first major interaction other than having to write a check or this or the other is that we went to Rosh Hashanah services and we get down there, we do the service and everything's cool and we're leaving and you two would get really, really grumpy if you fell asleep, we got home and you had to get back up and go to bed. So we would always stop at McDonald's and get you a milkshake. And y'all were just the happiest little things back there eating your milkshake for the 72 miles. <laughs> well. Come a week later, we went to Yom Kippur services. And as we're leaving, I think it was you, Nathan, basically said, let's go get our milkshakes to go home. <laughs> that was kind of that inducement that you guys really, really liked 
about going to services. You mean bribery? Yeah, pretty much. And then I had to explain <laughs> that we don't get milkshakes after yums before because we're fasting, at least for you guys until breakfast. You could go that long. So anyway, what happened was you were frustrated and you were, you were, you're not stopping your foot, but you're really confused. And fr- So I said, come on, Nathan. And so you and I walked up to the rabbi. And I looked at the rabbi and says, Nathan's just found out we can't stop and get a milkshake on the way home. I said, Rabbi, would you like to explain to Nathan why he can't? Why well, we could for Rosh Hashanah not Yom before. That was the rabbi who helped us start the congregation in Bowling Green. Anyway, so the rabbi sit there and he gets in this, let's see, how you were like, what, five, six years old? Five years old. And so he goes in this elaborate Jewish dialogue, you know, and you're like, all I want's a milkshake. And there was this disconnect, and I saw it real quickly. And it's like, okay. So I kind of ended that story real fast and dragged you out in the car and says, don't worry about it, Nathan. When mama's not looking, we'll get a milkshake. So what was really happening is on Yom Kippur, we fast for 25 hours. And as far as I was concerned, a five-year-old could go without eating until breakfast. It was my error in not explaining that to them before we left and not explaining that we would not be stopping for milkshakes. But I honestly didn't think that we had started a culture where it would be expected to stop for a milkshake on the way home. I also was not prepared for my husband, who was not Jewish, to immediately take the side of the kids to go ahead and stop for a milkshake. We also had a friend of ours in the car who was an adult who worked for our local um, NPR radio station, and she was totally fine with stopping at McDonald's milkshake. Didn't bother her a bit if she broke her fast two hours after it began. So I was kind of outnumbered, and I just really felt like we were starting new traditions, and we were making the effort to drive 72 miles every time we went to temple. And if we were going to do this and make it a serious effort, and if we were going to not only expend the money to be part of a synagogue, but make the commitment to be part of the synagogue, I thought this was a small effort that we could do. Your mother and I set up some guidelines. One guideline was I attended five services a year as a family. I said, you pick them, and then you point to the pew where I'm to sit, but I'm not going down every Friday. And we, we agreed on that. And therefore, every you know when y'all took off for Sunday school, I didn't have to go, I didn't have to teach, as if they would let me teach Sunday school. So that was pretty much it. I was the mystery man. Several people, when they met me, or your mother pointed me out or something like that, they're like, oh, she really does have a husband. You know, it's like, yeah. So there was a lot of that. Also, your mother and I did not discuss whether or not y'all would be raised Jewish. Y'all went, we all went to Micah and started going there, and they had Sunday school, and it was like your mother started, just enrolled y'all and started taking you down there. And I was like, okay, fine. And one time, she, your mother made a comment about, well, you know, I never really asked you about this. And I just kind of thought about it for a second. I said, well, a good Jewish education didn't hurt Jesus any, so I guess it won't hurt my boys. 
Your mother's face at that point was like, it was just total shock. She didn't know what to respond to that. And I said, okay. Next time on 72 Miles Till Kentucky, we make the commitment and give Judaism a go in Nashville until a few years later when a sense of urgency and a deepening desire for community helps Bowling Green launch its first synagogue. Am Shalom, People of Peace, the Jewish community of Bowling Green. 72 Miles features the stories of three separate interfaith Jewish families, two real, one not, and one mine. Together, they trace 150 years of Kentucky history with experiences that resonate today about being Jewish in America, about being Jewish and being Southern at the same time, and the blending of the two. So strap in and take a ride with me up and down I-65 or back and forth on the LNN Railroad. In the end, the when and the who don't make as much difference as you might think, but the where sure does. My name is Nathan Jordan Vaughn. It's 72 miles to Kentucky. Let's get moving.